The Bible is not one genre. It's not a bunch of prose. It's not some old bearded guy in a mountain who just wrote a bunch of stuff down. It's like, here's the wisdom, right? We believe it is the confrontation down through history between Israel, a real people, and this God named Yahweh who came to interact with Israel and over time revealed himself more and more to be the God of the universe. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gorman, and I'm not joined by Dave the Body Van Vickle. We are going to keep going with our series. So every week on Tuesday nights, I teach a class for my adults from Brandon Vaught's wonderful book from Word on Fire, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to Church. I want to thank our fine folks over at Ascension for being such amazing and supportive partners here in this quest to make the church more evangelistic. Major objections to the church. So Brandon Vaught breaks them down as objections about going to church. Mass is boring. Mass is irrelevant. Uh, you know. But and then theological objections. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Catholic Church. I don't, I don't like the Pope. You know, whatever. Then you also have moral objections. Could I just ask for some volunteers, what have been some of the objections that you've experienced? Is it moral, theological? Is it just cultural, social, church is boring kind of stuff? Or... Maybe I got hurt in church or something like that, yeah. Oh, okay. So moral, you see the suffering and evil and you're like, oh, morally and theological, yeah. Okay, so uh, what she was saying was, it is very, they just dismiss the Bible and don't think it's divinely inspired, meh. Okay, so let's, can we walk through some of these and then like good responses to have? Now, Brandon Vaught in the book Return, again, I'm gonna plug it, he, the whole third part is just objections and responses. Yeah, it's objections and responses. And it's fascinating because I know a lot of Catholics who wouldn't know how to answer these questions. Because I'll say, especially the second category of questions, which is moral issues, most Catholics are not formed in their moral choices by the Catholic Church. They might know what the Church teaches and may or may not agree. But I found that a lot of people... Are, like their moral reasoning is just as secular as anything else. Mm. But every so often they're like, yeah, but the church, I know the church is against it. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but we've gotten weird responses to our pregnancy issue stuff and surgery of people who are like, well, why does it matter? And it's like, well, it matters greatly because it's life. And all this stuff matters. And, you know, my wife's biggest sorrow was with dealing with an ectopic pregnancy is... Am I choosing myself over and against? You know, I'm not more worthy of life. You know, and the fact that she took that seriously is one of the reasons why I love her. The fact that she took that seriously, that it's not just like, oh my gosh, crisis moment, pain and suffering, fix it, fix it, fix it. You know, because I told this one woman who was struggling with infertility and she wanted to get IVF and she said, I know the church is against it, what should I do? And we had brought, uh, the, this woman had asked the deacon, and the deacon said, well, I don't really know a lot of moral theology, so I want to bring some Michael guy to sit in, and he'll keep it all confidential and whatnot, whoopsie. And uh, I'm just kidding, we didn't say it. But um, she, said, uh, she said, you know, I have been struggling with infertility for years, and now my husband won't adopt, so I want to get, um, you know, do IVF, and I know the church is against it. And he said, well, as long as you're praying, it'll be fine. I don't know if Mike agrees, and I'm like, 
And the really cool thing was this person came up to me afterwards and was like, that was an awesome answer. I never heard that. That was great. Thank you for changing my mind. I was like, whoa. The, the deacon said that. So the, and it just made me go, ah, oh, the church. We really have been sucking for the last 70 years. So um, I'm there with this woman and I said, listen, this is what I'm, I, I don't know what you're going through. It's a unique pain to you to struggle with infertility after being married for years and desiring kids and it's your body and all this stuff. And, and I shared with her some of the stuff my wife said when you're we struggling with infertility and, I said, but let me just say this. Every appeal to stop, to get off the cross sounds like it's coming from God, right? It's very appealing, right? We, we can mislead ourselves all the time. When you are suffering, they're like, ah, that sounds like God's telling me to do this to get out of this pain and suffering. Like, I get it, I get it. I said, but you can't do evil so that good can come. You can't, even though you would be the greatest mother in the history of the world, like your maternity might be, need to be expressed in a different way foster, adoption, okay, maybe not. But there's a hundred different ways that you can express your maternity and paternity without having biological children. Just ask a nun, just ask a brother, right? Just ask an aunt or an uncle who's never had kids of their own and yet have loved, who, who are the backbone of an entire family because they're stable and able to provide help and service in ways other people can't. So the, the issue is most of us, like we hear maybe conclusions of what the church teaches, but we don't understand the reasoning process behind it. And this bothered me so much because I had gone through a lot of our adult faith formation records and I realized that we had never taught a morality class here. We've never taught a curriculum here. So I had Brian Jones because he's getting his doctorate at USD, blah, 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 fancy man. So I had him give a class called The New Way and it was a whole series on the third part of the catechism on morality and it was awesome. It was awesome. And for the first time, like, that was, the, that was the first time systematic moral catechesis was given at our parish from this perspective, not just like, hey, abortion's wrong, it's the taking of an innocent human life, don't get an abortion, be against abortion, vote pro-life. That's pretty much like the, the most you hear. And so I would encourage you that for a, a lot of you in this room, maybe this, the, some of these things might be the first time you've heard a moral argument being made in defense of the church's teaching. Maybe not the people in this room, but... The, that's the reality, that's the sad reality, is most of us don't understand the reasoning, and then you, you feel like, well, what is some, some celibate man in Rome gonna tell me how to live my life? Let's walk through some of, some of the objections. So number one, last semester I did freshman theology of, um, for year one, what was it called on the Bible? The big picture. Yeah, and so when we did the big picture, my whole thing was, I'm assuming every kid in high school in this room thinks the Bible is just Bronze Age mythology, right? That's a common phrase of the new atheists. And they're not gonna take it seriously. So I have to go after the number one myth that every high school student who wants to jettison the Bible out of their lives will say, which is, isn't it like the telephone game? Or have you ever heard the telephone game argument that some of you have? Yeah. Where like, it's like the telephone game. You tell it to one person, it gets told 50 different people, you get to the end of something totally different. Okay, now that is the dumbest reason to deny the divinity of Christ is usually where most people have this. But the, the miracle stories in the Old and New Testament, all this stuff, why? Yes, when we are at a party, drinking margaritas and we play the telephone game, it's not gonna work. But when you're a culture that is formed on the oral presentation and preservation of your history, you play the telephone game, you won't even get a syllable wrong. These are entire cultures who for thousands of years preserve their history through speaking it 
and a listening. And they have people who are trained, whose whole job is to transmit the sacred stories that are at the center of their civilization. So when you sit here and say, we're playing the telephone game, no, that's not it at all. I mean, in fact, Plato, the great philosopher Plato, lamented the invention of writing because how it would make men's memories grow dull. Because your memories are forced to be sharper when you don't have an outside thing in the world that can take that can act as, as a crutch for your memory. So not only were their memories actually better, but they had devised whole systems of memorization. In fact, the way they structure stories is to be memorized. And if you want a perfect example of this, open any one of the Gospels. Make sure you own a Bible that has subheadings, right? The headings. And note how almost every single, we call them pericopes, every subgrouping of text is a nice, compact, specific story or parable or teaching. It's literally arranged so that it can be memorized. So almost everything, I noticed this when I was going on BibleGateway.com, you can highlight verses. So I'm going through and I'm reading Matthew and I would get to a subheading and I would say, okay, what I first wanna do is understand the setting. Well, wouldn't you know it, nine times out of 10, The first verse of that subheading is the setting. Now, when Jesus has made his way to, when Jesus left Bethany and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, there some Pharisees came to him, wishing to test him, saying, so I would highlight all that in green. And I started doing that with Matthew 19, and then I began doing it over and over and over again, because in like Matthew chapter five, where he gives the famous beatitude. The beatitudes are, and Jesus went up the mountain with his disciples, and he sat down and taught them, saying, So it's like, okay, so he's on a mountaintop, crowds are around him, he's up it, he sits down, surrounds himself with his disciples, he opens his mouth saying, all right, so everything happening right now is a dramatic and important teaching moment. So how does he teach? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the three chapters, the longest uninterrupted sermon of Jesus. Wow, gonna be really difficult to memorize. No, it's not. It's all broken down into manageable chunks. First, the eight Beatitudes. Now for us, it might be hard to memorize the eight Beatitudes, because we're not gonna give it 30 minutes in the old college try, right? It literally takes 30 minutes for you to memorize, I'm sending you 45, to memorize the eight Beatitudes, right? When I was growing up, we had to memorize the Ten Commandments, Seven Sacraments, the eight Beatitudes, Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be, Act of Contrition, right? All this, all this stuff that we do at Mass, all these Protestants when they come to Mass, they're like, how do you know what to say now? Where's the paper, right? <laughs> we just learn by osmosis, you do all this stuff. But here's the deal, when you actually commit your memory to something, you realize that the eight Beatitudes are immediately followed by, you know, Jesus says, uh, salt and light, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel basket. Easily memorizable. What's the next major section after that? The six antitheses. You have heard it was said to men of old, dot, 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 but I say to you, an antithesis. They're all arranged so that it could be memorized. Now, not every part of the Bible is like that because then you get into Paul's letters. You ever been at mass on a Sunday and all of a sudden you get to the second reading and you're like, what the heck does that have anything to do? What is he even talking about? That's because Paul wrote a letter. It's just a letter. They had the letter, they copied the letter, they copied the letter over and over again. Now we have the letter, okay? Here's the funny thing with that. This first reading is all framed by the gospel. Everything in the mass is framed by the gospel. So the gospel was chosen first, then the first reading was chosen after that, then the psalm to emphasize that, then the collect prayers, you know, the let us pray, okay. Right, all that stuff was done. And then they're like, where are we with Paul? Oh, we're in the middle of a thought in Romans chapter nine. Let's just keep going. So oftentimes we don't even know where we are. I mean, honestly, 
The second reading was added in the new mass. We didn't have a second reading in the old mass. And it was added so that we could get more of scripture in the mass. But oftentimes when you're using a letter of St. Paul, you just... You know, they might start every reading with brothers and sisters. But that's, they just throw that in there because it's probably at the beginning of the letter it said that. So they're like, nah, we'll say that. So here's the, the interesting thing is these things were written with memorization to be the main thing. The majority of the text in the Old and New Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, couplets. Some of them are just one or two verses that juxtapose a simple uh, sentence or line or phrase. So before we go all like, oh, well, this is just a bunch of game of telephone where people, people, Jesus said, I'm a really good teacher. And everyone's like, yeah, I think you're God, right? Down the line. And I, I heard a high school student say this, and I, I knew this person. I love this person's mom. She's awesome. All she wants is her kids to have faith. And I heard her say that one day in confirmation, a, a, you know, whatever, two years ago, whatever, when we were still meeting in person, and it broke my heart. So then when the shutdown happened and we had to record this new stuff, I said, that's going to be one of the main things that I address. Where do we get, oh gosh, it's almost 8.30. Where do we get the Bible? Where does it come from? And this is the first thing I want people to understand. The Bible is not a book. We, we put it in a book. We slap a cover on it. But it's not a book. The word Bible, Biblia, does not mean book. It means library or collection of books. And why does that matter? Because it's not written by one. I literally had someone say this. I wanted to choke him. Oh, just some white guy over here and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Good Lord. There's a certain point where you're trying to be so like anti-racist, you become super racist, right? Then I was like, really? So you're calling the entire Middle East a bunch of white guys? Like how myopic is that? But again, that was a tangent and I digress. Uh, I have the weirdest plain conversations, but... uh, So we go through this, and I said, okay, so you have to understand that the Bible is composed of 73 books. Those books don't, I'm like, we have to stop having an infantile view of the Bible where it's like a guy writing it all down, and God's being like, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That notion of, it's called direct dictation theory of inspiration has been rejected by the Catholic Church. Why? Because the sacred human authors, we call it the sacred authors, right? Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. That's what we mean by inspired. But the sacred authors wrote according to their freedom. But in doing that, they wrote all and only what God wanted. Michael, how do you have a human author writing whatever they want and writing whatever God wants? Wow, it almost sounds like when a human will is in union with a divine will, the word of God becomes manifest. I know a guy named Jesus who is the union of the human and the divine. So the Bible, also known as the word of God, is the union of the human and the divine in obviously a totally different way. But it's important for us to know that the human authors were allowed to be authors. So the church explicitly rejects what many fundamentalists hold. And many fundamentalist Christians will hold in a direct dictation theory of inspiration. So, uh, I mean, and, and it's not like saints and people down through church history didn't also hold to that. I mean, my favorite picture, oftentimes if you look at evangelists in paintings, you know, you'll see them with a scroll writing and then an angel will be whispering, right? And they're doing this. No, that's just to show us symbolically what inspiration is. It doesn't mean that it's like, all right, all right, all right. And then, you're right, that's not, that's not the point. The point is not direct dictation. But when fundamentalists uphold that, they take an overly literalistic view of sacred scripture. So it's often that many Catholics are battling not the Catholic vision of sacred scripture, 
but a really reactionary fundamentalist, and which has always been in the history of the church, anti-Catholic, fundamentalist Christian view of scripture. So how do we view it? Well, when I talk about it with high school students, I say, there is, the Bible is not one genre either. It's not a bunch of prose. It's not some old bearded guy in a mountain who just wrote a bunch of stuff down and it's like, here's the wisdom, right? That's not what we believe. Other religions might have that. And they're holy written, they're sacred texts. We believe it is the confrontation down through history between Israel, a real people, and this God named Yahweh who came to interact with Israel and over time revealed himself more and more to be the God of the universe. And as he expresses himself to a people, the people are writing this down. And here's the crazy thing. Half the time you look in the Old Testament, it's making fun of the very people who are supposedly making this stuff up. Like one of the things that when I talk about the resurrection, that, you know, how do you believe in the historicity of the resurrection? Clearly they stole the body, they ditched it, and they just made up these stories. And I said, okay, who profits? What do you mean? I said, I don't know about you, but when I lie, because I was a really good liar growing up, not anymore. But when I would, would lie, it was to benefit myself, right? That's why people lie. I didn't lie for the game of lying, but even then, you're getting some twisted pleasure out of it. You lie because you got in trouble, you don't wanna be in trouble, so you're like, traffic, I'm sorry, I'm late. Right, whatever people say, right? Oh, my cell phone didn't get your phone call both those times. So the idea, it's a joke, you didn't get it? You get it both those times? Clearly you got the phone call. Um, So in this, when we begin to look at, I totally lost my train of thought, what was I saying? Back it up, back it up, Gormley. Lying, okay, who benefits, woo! (laughs) Let's spin those wheels back. Who benefits from hiding the body and saying he rose from the dead? Well, obviously the early church did, those bunch of patriarchal males. They dominated Western, oh, they were all brutally murdered, their families excommunicated them. Everyone they knew and called home excommunicated them. They were chased out of the Holy Land and they died, Most of many of them in exile, most of them brutal torture. The only one who didn't die was John the Apostle and he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and didn't die. So yeah, bully for them. Now they're rich and fit, no. All of them suffered greatly. All the first like 40 popes were martyred. Who benefits from making up a lie that you end up dying for? And then the question is, well, maybe they're hysterical and they believe lies. And then you say, okay, well, maybe they do believe lies. Maybe they dreamed it all up in their head by their immense amount of grief. One of them or two of them or maybe three of them. But hundreds? At one point, 500 people saw the risen Christ. Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, he saw the risen Christ. You have people like Thomas, who's a member. When we think of the Apostle Thomas, what do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Not exactly a glowing recommendation, right? The last time he's in the Bible is being like, this Jesus doesn't exist, and I won't even believe unless I shove my fingers into his wounds and my hand into his side. And then Jesus appears a week later, and he's like, we're doing this. Uh, No, my Lord, my God, no, we're doing this. And he shoves it, like the whole point, like Matthew 28, they worshiped him, yet some still doubted. There is not a clean and easy self-appraising, self-aggrandizing document. The reason why I tend to believe in the Bible is because it mocks, humiliates, insults, and humbles the very people it's talking about in their lack of faith. Jeremiah, show me a people in all the nations who are like this people. They seek to get rid of me and worship other nations' gods. Show me a nation that does that. And yet they don't even worship real gods. Yet I, the Lord, their God, they forsake. Right, oh, that is the, I mean, the look at the Bible, you see this historic pattern over and over again. 
So we are battling against a handful of prejudices or caricatures. Prejudice number one, that the Bible is a silly old Bronze Age myth. It's not. It actually predates the Bronze Age and postdates it, right? It is actually a sweeping narrative caught up if you involve the oral tradition literally thousands of years, dozens of generations, whole hosts of human persons, both man and women, compose the Bible. Proverbs 31, we know for a definite fact, was written by a woman. So many people don't even know that women contributed to sacred scripture. Many people don't even know the the heroic women in the Bible. Many people also don't realize that Karl Marx never said one angry anti-Christian thing, anti-religious thing that could top what any of the prophets said about religious hypocrites. If you want to hear the most scathing condemnation of religious hypocrisy, open Ezekiel. Open the prophets and just read them. They take those fools to task. And how did they respond? They killed the prophets. Over and over again, if this book is simply made up, They did a really bad job at the whole point of lying. Okay, so you back it up, we go to the ultimate mythological claim, Genesis. Where are dinosaurs in the Bible? This is the number one thing. In fact, right before I started this class, a woman brought her grandson downstairs in the lobby and we talked for about an hour and a half. Why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible if the Bible is true? Right, because he loves dinosaurs and he's scared he's gonna have to give up dinosaurs because like one of his friend's parents said, well, dinosaurs were bones that Satan created and scattered over the world to deny that the earth is 6,000 years old. And so I just said to him, I said, listen, if you want to believe the earth is 6,000 years old, that's a scientific thing. That is not a biblical thing. Because the author of Genesis chapter 1 is not the same as the author of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 uses completely different language than Genesis chapter 1. The fascinating thing is, why did some later editor or compiler put them like this so that we've received it in this completed form. To me, I think that speaks more eloquently than just one guy just writing it all down from beginning to end without any hiccups. The the Bible is an intensely interwoven document more than any other ancient document. The Bible is the internet before there was computers. On average, researchers have found the Bible references itself 65,000 times. Over and over again, they literally have done heat maps where you see these lines, not heat maps, but these lines where it connects Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, everything go back to Genesis or Exodus or whatever. All these references completely within themselves because these people only understood themselves as a people through this book. Because this book was not just a holy scripture, like I said, by some bearded old man who had some, you know, fasted for a hundred days and then wrote down his supposed revelation. No, this is the historical lived experience of a real people. So then we go into Genesis chapter two. Genesis two to 11 is the most difficult part of the Bible in order to explain it to people who don't want to have faith in God. Why? Because it's mythological in nature and it's structure. Genesis 2 to Genesis 11, you guys know it, right? So you have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right? The the fall, then Cain and Abel. Then you have the two bloodlines of Cain and Seth, and then how they become warlike and filled with violence and all this stuff. Then you have Noah, and Noah goes to 9, 7, 8, 9, and then you have 10, the table of nations. Supposedly, here's how all the peoples of the earth are peopled, and these are their descendants. And then you go into 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel ends, generations come and go. Now you have Abram, Ur of the Chaldees, right? Abraham. Then you spend, it's funny, you go from creation 
to the Tower of Babel, spanning thousands of years and a handful of pages, you know, 12 chapters, 11 chapters. But then you get to chapter 12, and to the end of Genesis, it's three lifetimes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we're in Egypt, right? It's almost as if, if you take Genesis, you can break it in half. Here's the first part, told in a completely different way than this second part. See, we don't ever get this when you're in history class or you're in English lit and taught by an atheistic professor who all he's doing is trying to blow holes in your child's faith because many of our children were never taught a more adult version of how do we know the scriptures? What do you do when they're kids? You just tell them the stories because the stories are constantly referenced. So you're like, well, if my kids know who Noah is and Samson is and all this stuff, when we get to the Gospels and they begin to learn when Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here, greater than the temple, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. They know the stories. They know the people. The problem is when our education stops there, they just picture Noah and a giraffe head popping out of a boat, right, and a, a rainbow, and it's hanging on your bedroom wall when you're, you know, two, and maybe you got a little plushy toy. I named my kid Noah. So I, every parish friend, colleague, coworker has filled our house with Noah cartoon things, right? And I love them. So then what I do is I break down Adam and Eve. I break down the story, especially of the fall. But when you break down Adam and Eve, you say, listen, these are not scientific people. When ancient people looked at the world, they did not see it in linear progression. They did not strip it away of symbolic representation. So yes, it's a myth. You use symbols to get at the heart of reality. Okay, the number one defender of the Bible is a man who kind of sort of doesn't even believe in God. He says he lives as if God is real, but he doesn't know if God is real. And his name is Jordan Peterson. Now, some of you know Jordan Peterson, some of you might not, but I just like rip him off for about four weeks in a row for these high school kids. And they're just sitting there like, oh my goodness, I can take the Bible seriously now. So for instance, when you talk about Adam and Eve and the fall, I say, now remember, paper was rare. People who could read were even rarer. So when someone wrote, they had to take a lot of meaning and shove it in a few sentences. So like for instance, like a master craftsman who's going to make a chair. Right? If he's a master, he knows, well, I'm going to build a chair without using a single screw. So I need to make dovetail joints and this joint and that joint and do all this stuff. He uses craft at a layer, a level that's higher than an Ikea, you know, self-assembled chair. Right? And we know this, but we don't bring the same attitude to sacred scripture when we read it. We hit the hard parts, the rumble strips in the Bible, and you're like, really, God, really, this is it? This is a silly little story for children. But then you say, okay, now imagine this one author is writing multiple levels of meaning intentionally as that author. We call it nested meaning, like a Russian nesting doll. Like here's the story, oh, little children can listen. But then you take that off and you apply it to the context of Israel leaving Egypt and you're like, holy crap, that has so much more meaning. So for instance, the serpent, a talking snake, you know, talks to the woman, she gives up, she doubts God, and then she sins, and then the man sins, and then we lose salvation. Nesting doll number one, that's like the big fat outer doll that little toddlers can play with. But then you start going deeper and you realize that this giving us profound psychological truth in just a handful of sentences. So for instance, when you and I are tempted, how do we deal with temptation? Well, number one, the devil comes at us to draw us to the very line of our human freedom and says, really? The goal of the serpent is to get us to one, 
resent the limits of human freedom. You mean I don't get to dictate to myself what the law is that I'm going to follow? How dare, especially for us modern people. Autonomy literally means autos nomos, self-law. So when you're telling me someone is imposing their will on me, I'm getting a little mad. God doesn't give a reason. He just says, trust me. God never gave a reason why he said you'll die the death, but he doesn't tell them why they'll die the death. He doesn't give them additional information. Satan does. Well, God knows that you eat of it. Your eyes will be open and you'll become like him. So what is that happening? Every one of our temptations, we doubt God's generosity. That's why we sin. We doubt the Father will provide. Just like the people telling me and my wife to handle it, just remove it, it'll be fine, right? At its core, the temptation is, yes, I want to get rid of this suffering. Okay, great. Just do this. Well, I'm not really, you're not supposed to do that. Just do it. It's fine, right? Every temptation starts with our doubting God's generosity. Maybe he's forbidden this because in our heart of hearts, we know or we think that he's holding out on us. So I'm going to make a shortcut to happiness. I'm going to morally compromise. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then what happens? When she looks at the fruit, what does the sacred scripture say about it? Three things. Pleasing to the eyes, good for food, and desirable to make one wise. None of those are intrinsically evil, but they still violated God's commandment. Have you ever sinned with something that you hate? Probably not. You usually sin with stuff that's appealing, attractive, alluring. A lure. If you've ever gone fishing, you know what a lure is, right? You know that if, you ever, if you're really good at fishing, you only use the lures that that type of fishing you're trying to get will be appealed to. If you're going to go big mouth bass fishing, you're going to use something totally different. I don't know anything about fish, and now I'm going to, well, trying to get a swordfish. You're going to use totally different things. So the idea is, within these few verses, there is so much more nested meaning than what we give it credit for. But because our education is coloring books and pop-up rainbows and all this stuff, that's all we think that it is. For instance, um, Cain and Abel. In like six sentences, you have the drama of the first, literally the first hero and anti-hero or nemesis. So you have the hero and the nemesis. What does God say? Abel comes forward and he offers a sheep of his, a firstling of his flock. Cain comes forward and offers his crops. Well, we know in the Old Testament that cereal offerings and animal offerings were okay, they're comparable, but the word that changes everything is firstling. Abel offered his best. Cain offered what was left. That's what you infer when some guy who can only write 50 words chooses one word to emphasize everything else. Oh, okay, so that firstling should draw my attention to Cain's lack of a, that qualifier, not the first fruits. He just offered the fruits. And then God says, why are you doing poorly? Don't you know if you do well, you will be rewarded? Cain's countenance fell. And he said, come, brother, and let us go into the wilderness, or whatever the phrase was, and there he rose up and killed him. And then what happens? Cain, where is Abel? I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, when you stop and actually read verse by verse, and you go slowly through the story, you begin to unfold like the heart of real violence between people. Why? Do good. Everyone, every human being knows if you do good, good things will come. Okay, not always. It's not a hard and fast rule. But you do know that if you do poorly, poor things are only going to come. Sometimes people will punish you for doing the right thing. Oh, wait, here's a story that illustrates how that unfolds, right? So you take off the nesting doll of violence and bro brothers, don't fight. Why? Because you'll end up killing each other, Cain and Abel, right? Then you take off that outer nesting doll and you go a little deeper. Here is someone who is told by God himself, you're walking the wrong path. Turn around. 
And note that Cain refuses to turn around, but still gets sad. Why? Because this is the victim mentality that says the universe should change, and I'm ticked off that it's not different. But I'm not going to change. And then you don't have repentance because you don't care about changing. What do you have? You internalize it. You have hate. And that hate spills over into violence. So now you have Cain right after God saying, sin is couching at your door. You must master it. What does he do? Come into the woods. It's a direct act. He wants to kill Abel because Abel now is for him a sign of a pricked conscience. You remind me, shining boy, of all that I'm not. And rather than me try to become you, I'd rather just kill you. Now, God forbid, that's never happened in the history of humanity. Okay, well, that's another thing. But then you can look at the story of Cain and Abel even deeper. See how sin, the first sin of Adam and Eve, has woven its way throughout even their children. It's a pollution that doesn't stop. It keeps going. So that what once was violence against God, and now I'm covering my body to hide, now I'm going to dominate the other. Now it's not enough that I sin on my own. Now is if you're not cooperating, you're done. And the pollution of sin goes deeper. And now you look at the line of Cain, and they're all evil people. The first thing he does He builds a city, right? Now, symbolically, what does that matter? Well, Abel is living in the wilderness, following the flocks. Seth comes after, probably doing something similar. But here's Cain, urban, power, sophistication, culture, right? You begin to list all the people. These are the people that play the lyre and the harp. And it goes through all these different people who are the fathers of those, Tubal Cain, who is the father of all those who forge instruments of bronze and iron. The whole point of the story, using symbols to stand in for maybe centuries of people, is it uses the symbols to illustrate the glorification of self that these cities represented. And here you have the Cainite line and the Sethite line. And these are the daughters of God and these are the sons of men. Now, I'll just ask you from personal experience, who are more attractive to young men? The good religious girls or the not so good religious girls, right? So then you have the story said, the sons of God began to look upon the daughters of men and find them fair and took to them as many as they pleased. Because when you back the line of Cain up a little bit, what do you find? The first polygamist, the first bigamist. He had, uh, his name was Lamech. And he had two wives. And he said, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold, because I've killed a boy for bruising me, a man for wounding me, right? And so you end up having violence multiply even more. And then it multiplies even more. And now it's polluting the Sethite line as the grandfather of them all is a man named Lamech. Why are you using a sin-filled name? Oh no, to the careful reader, we just took another level off the nesting doll. And it gets so bad that finally there's just one dude left who cares about God. And his name is Noah, whose name means rest. And then God says, all right, you remember the waters from creation? I'm snapping the foundations of the earth back and I'm going to flood it all and start it all over again. Over and over again, you see these nested levels of meaning, especially in stories like that. Job right? Jonah and the prophet. These stories have symbols, and these symbols represent many, many strands of what we would call an abstract thought or a concept. 
violence to your neighbor, nemesis, brother against brother, all of these things, and it brings it all together into one symbol. So that symbol can communicate hundreds of things instead of one thing, or dozens of things instead of one thing. In linguistic terms, you call the certain terms or whatever, or phrases, pregnant, because it's not just the thing you see on the outside, they actually have a lot more meaning within. And then you find out that the whole story of Noah is a giant chiastic structure shaped like an arrowhead that over and over again, they, he says a thing and then he repeats himself in a descending way so that the middle verse of the entire three chapter arc is emphasized. We don't see it because we're not craftsmen. We don't craft our words like that. We kiss, keep it simple, stupid. All right, we just write down a couple sentences, tell them what you said, say it again, or tell them what you said, say it, and then say it again, right? But they didn't do that. They crafted pages, chapters, books, and the center rate or the verse right in the middle is, and God remembered Noah Alrighty, we're going to take a brief commercial break to hear from the fine folks at Ascension Press. When you're a busy mom, it can seem like God comes in second place to everything else. As Catholics, we know that God should be at the center of our lives. We know we should be planning around him instead of trying to plan him around our schedules. But it's so hard when you're juggling all the logistics. Back for a third year to help mothers put God at the center is a Catholic Mother's Planner. A planner designed by Catholic mothers for Catholic mothers to help you and your family live with God at the center of your schedule. To help you do this, the planner includes inspirational quotes from saints and scripture, novena start dates, saints feast days, family recipes, activities to celebrate feast days, and so much more. The Catholic Mother's Planner has sold out within months every year, so be sure to order yours today. To reserve your copy of the 2022 Catholic Mother's Planner, go to ascensionpress.com slash plan around God. That's ascensionpress.com slash plan around God. And then what happens? Well, the rain stops falling, the water starts receding, and it goes in the exact opposite. It's the largest chiastic structure in all of ancient literature. But we don't know this because the Bible is just like a stupid Bronze Age myth, and it's just dumb, and it's unsophisticated. And then all of a sudden you see this, and you're like, oh my goodness. And then you look at Jesus, and you begin to talk about Jesus. And why does Jesus matter? Because Jesus references these things, but Jesus goes beyond them over and over again. So when people say, object to the church. Well, why do we have an all-male priesthood? Why not females? Obviously, the church is sexist. Well, Jesus chose all males to be apostles. And this is the apostolic tradition and the apostolic succession. And the church has thought about it and said, we, can't, we do not have the power to ordain women. It just cannot happen. They are not priests. Pope John Paul II said that. Why? You're a bunch of chauvinists? Well, that would mean Jesus is a chauvinist. Or maybe there's something about masculinity and femininity that expresses something in that symbolic representation in a way that God wants to get across to the world. So the church is always mother and wife, and Jesus is the bridegroom. So the priesthood is meant to represent the impregnating force of grace entering into the world. So they stand in the person of Christ as the masculine towards the feminine. But this means as lay people, we're all feminine. So women have to get stuck with the fact that we're all sons in the sun, and men get stuck with the fact that we're all the bride of Christ. In the end, it all works itself out. But why do we have these things? Because the symbols mean something. And when you destroy the symbol, you destroy the meaning. 
Well, can't women give a homily too? Yes, yes, of course they can. Yes, they can say nice things, and yes, they can say powerful things, and yes, they can probably, well, I mean, manage the church and all that stuff. Yes, but that's not what the priesthood represents. And so you begin to look at a lot of these things that on the surface are very shallow, empty, meaningless. We probably should have had another class. Uh, sweet Moses. They got rid of AC at about 8.15, I think. Uh, when we look at these objections, my encouragement for y'all is to actually, like, I mean, to me, some of the most fierce objections is the most fertile ground. Because here's the deal, like, some of us, they'll shut you out. Some of the people that come at you, like, with the, oh, that's so stupid, it's like, let's talk about why it's stupid. Give me, give me your best reason. I, I won't even argue. I won't say a single word. I've never heard of someone saying the story about Jesus is stupid. Could you share that with me? Because I guarantee you, you go after those hard points, that's where there is the most fertile soil for a conversation, if they'll let you. And so the letting you part is the prayer part, Right? The letting you is the prayer part. You can't force someone to share their feelings. Lord knows we do it enough on retreats. (laughs) So you can't force them, but you can invite them over and over and over again until they take you seriously, right? And it's amazing because when you begin to talk about this stuff, we had a mother who said to me, my son for the last five years has left faith formation and said, you know, what'd you learn? So he was fine. (laughs) You know, like not even answer, fine. She said, and now he's reading the Bible. You've got him at least that interested that on his own, he cracked it open. He's like, actually, Genesis is really interesting. Mom, did you know the garden, the tree, it says you will die, die, and die, die, is, you know, and they go through this whole thing. So there's a lot more. Sweet Moses, I really went off on the Bible part. Uh, I blame you. Uh, I'll accept it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would like for you all to email me if you want. And I would like to teach a class specifically on scripture to make it palpable for skeptics' ears, okay? But I want y'all to be, if you can, and it'll be something like this. Like I teach adult confirmation on Thursdays. I'll have to find a time to do this because most of our times are taken. But as the schedule goes on, I would like to be able to help with more of this type of stuff, okay? Awesome. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.